we have a number of readings. So the first reading is from Leviticus chapter 1, the first nine verses. (coughs) The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, "Speak Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And then the uh, next uh, reading will be Leviticus chapter 4, verse 12 verses. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, and lay his hand on the head of the bull, and kill the bull before the Lord." And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering." But the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. And um, and then the next uh, reading uh, from Leviticus chapter 6. First uh, seven verses. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit 
or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby. If he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in the full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall and he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. Uh, and the last two readings will be from uh, the New Testament. So we have Romans chapter 3. Verses 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then uh, over to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of his, this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an, an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Heavenly Father, teach us the way of your statutes and we will keep it to the end. Give us understanding that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole heart. Lead us in the path of your commandments for it is our delight. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not towards selfish gain. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in your ways. Confirm your promises to us that you may be feared. Please turn away the reproach that we dread, for your laws are good. In your, in your laws are righteousness that give life. So help us to believe this and to trust this, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. January 1st, 
of the new year, New Year's Day, the day of the new year, a day of New Year's resolutions, good decisions and good choices that we want to keep during the year. And every new year, you can bet that there's one resolution that Christians are going to make. This is the year that I'm going to read through the entire Bible in one year. Three to four chapters a day. That's all you need to do to do it. So January 1st, Genesis 1 to 4, easy stuff. By mid-January, you're through Genesis, and by the end of January, you've slogged it hard through Exodus. There's been a lot of narrative, and mostly it's been easy going, but the last 20 chapters or so of Exodus are filled with heaps of laws and instructions on how to build the tabernacle, a big tent, and that was a bit hard going. But after all that rough slogging, you're done. And then you turn the page, and you hit Leviticus a book that we're all familiar with, not because we know it that well, but because we probably started and stopped reading this book a dozen times. Right, you get through the first four chapters in and you're already feeling lost. You're, you're lost in the, what's going on, you're lost in knowing the relevance of what you're reading, and you've just lost interest. Ah, Leviticus, the book we love to hate almost just as much as we don't understand it. It's also one of the books which is often misquoted, especially in the recent same-sex marriage debate. Christians have been known to quote Levitical laws against homosexuality, but we haven't been quick to quote the same book when it comes to banning eating pork or prawns um, and lobster. You know, that's something that non-believers have picked up as well. How can we, ask, asking us forcefully at times, that how can we believe in a God that demands that we do not eat shellfish wear mixed fabrics or stone homosexuals. So then why are we spending eight weeks looking at this book? Let me start off with a bit of context first. The book of Leviticus comes right after the book of Exodus. Now in Exodus, God has saved his people with mighty acts and massive miracles and signs. He brings them out of slavery in Egypt. He brings them safely through the Red Sea, safely through the desert, and he brings them to Mount Sinai, into his very presence. They have received the instructions on how to build a tabernacle. It's a big tent that God will choose to live in. He's going to dwell among his people. And by the end of Exodus, that tent is put up and God's glory and presence descends on the place. And it is so bright, so radiant, so pure, no one can enter it, not even Moses. So we open up Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, with these words. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Now you notice that word there, from. God has to call out from inside the tent to speak to Moses because nobody can get in. Now, this might seem like a little detail, but it's important to remember that the tent that God gave to Israel is modeled after this place called the Garden of Eden. Right? The ornaments, the interior furniture, the east, even the eastward-facing entry are all reminders that this tent was a mini Garden of Eden. God's presence among his people but just like the Garden of Eden the people cannot enter it so if you could summarize the mission of the Bible in one simple sentence it would be finding the way back to the garden everything good in life is found in God's presence and there it was for Israel just an arm's length away but they couldn't get near it but now 
you turn in your Bibles to the next book of the Bible, the book of Numbers, and you notice chapter 1, verse 1 in the book of Numbers. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. At the start of Leviticus, God speaks to Moses from the tent. Moses is outside, but, the start, but by the start of Numbers, Moses is now in the tent with God. See, this is what the book of Leviticus is all about. How sinful, unclean people can come into the presence of a pure and holy God. Put it another way. The book of Leviticus is about how the holy and pure king of the universe can live among sinful, impure people. How he can live among us without his holiness melting us in our sin and impurity. So then why is this book so hard to read? All of us have been there. We've started Leviticus and we've kind of quit halfway through if we've managed to get halfway through. Well, for starters, there's the cultural gap. There's a big cultural gap of time and culture between us and the people addressed in the book. We live in houses or apartments. They lived in tents. In our place of worship, you're not allowed to throw rice or confetti at a wedding. Helen and Matt, you're getting married next week. Mental note. Okay? Uh, in, in their place of worship, they slaughtered animals. They are given rules about ritual purity and impurity, offerings and sacrifices, do's and don'ts that feel totally foreign and different to our world. Now, secondly, this book is hard because we so often lose the overall big story. Right? Leviticus comes after 15 long and detailed chapters about how to build the tabernacle. Those 15 chapters in Exodus, they're hard enough. So by the time we stagger through them and hit more laws and rules, it can be very discouraging and disorienting. It it kind of feels like going on a bushwalk up Mount Kutha, right? You know the destination. The leader sets a good pace showing you the sights, right? And then about a quarter of the way up the top, right, and you get excited for getting to the summit, the tour guide stops the whole group and then spends two hours describing in detail the trees and the leaves and the grass that's all around you. And then they take, they finish, they take three steps, And then they spend another five hours describing the weeds and the insects and the animals that you might come across. All this detail flies at you so fast, so quickly, that you forget where you were going in the first place. And reading Leviticus can feel a bit like that. All the rules and the laws can be so detailed and disorienting. And one of the final reasons I think this book is so hard is because it's mostly law. And most of these laws are obviously not applicable to our present situation in life. And then when we hear that word law, we hear a negative vibe. We pick up and we instantly react negatively, right? Especially after our Galatians sermon series back in 2016. Christians do not live by law. We live by grace. So when faced with these difficulties, I think we become practical Marcionites. Marcion was a fourth century heretic who taught that the God of the Old Testament was a mean and vengeful, hateful, angry God, and the God of the New Testament was a loving, merciful, gracious God. And so he literally cut out the Old Testament from his Bibles. Now, we might not go that far in our convictions, but in practice, in practice, do we tend to avoid books of the Old Testament like Leviticus because we've subtly bought into the idea that these books are irrelevant to us. 
And yet, even with all these difficulties, I want to suggest that spending eight weeks in this book is well worth it. Because this strange and foreign feeling book in the Old Testament is actually one of the most crucial pillars in laying down the groundwork for Jesus to come. So there are some things about Jesus that you just cannot understand without the book of Leviticus. When, when, why did Jesus need to die in order to forgive? Why did he need to shed his blood? Why is Jesus' death called a substitute? The New Testament sometimes calls Jesus our great high priest. What does that mean? How can God preserve his holiness and justice while at the same time forgiving and forgetting our sins? The answer to these questions and a whole heap of other questions is find their deep roots in the book of Leviticus. So, enough of the introduction. Let's turn to chapters 1 to 3. And you'll see in uh, these chapters uh, in your Bibles, uh, a number of offerings are given. If you quickly skim over the chapter headings, you'll see that they're not so creatively summarized as the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the peace offerings. Now, chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, is read out by Chi before, uh, and it serves as a good passage that kind of models what the other offerings uh, in these passages are doing, in these chapters are doing as well. Uh, Here we can see a number of things that God requires in the method of bringing these offerings. This method includes, first in verse 3, the offering is to be without blemish. Right, in, the, in this first one, it's, it's a male, uh, but in other sacrifices, it can be female. But the main thing in verse 3 is that the animal has to be perfect. Uh, the second thing you notice here is that the offerer brings the animal to the tabernacle in verse 4. They are to lay their hands on the head of the animal. Right? Actually, just one hand on the animal. Now, this is sort of kind of a way, I think, of symbolizing that this, the person, is offering the animal to God freely. Verse uh, number three, verse five, the animal is killed before God and the blood is collected and thrown on the, on the sides of the altar. Uh, number four, verses six to nine, you see that the animal is cut up and then burnt on the altar. And then number five, we're told at the end of verse nine that this is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And when you remember that this is basically a barbecue, it kind of makes sense. Summer's coming around the corner. One of the best things about living in Brisbane is the evening barbecue. And that's the smell of the temple or the tabernacle. Now, in chapter 2, the grain offering follows a similar pattern, minus the fact that you obviously don't kill your all-purpose flour. Now, the flour is put on the altar and is burnt, and again, the aroma is pleasing to God. Now it smells like a bake, uh, an oven baking things uh, like bread and biscuits. A part of this particular offering is also given to the priest for personal use. And then you get to chapter 3 and we have another burnt offering, but it's called a peace offering. Now the difference here is that uh, this, um, this is different to sin offerings that come later because it seems more like an offering of thanksgiving for the peace that God gives to his people. Again, if you look at chapter 3, you'll notice a similar pattern. At the end of chapter 3, verse 1, the animals to be without blemish. Chapter 3, verse 2, they lay their hands on the head of the animal. End of verse 2, they kill it and the blood is thrown on the sides of the altar. Verse 5, they burn the animal on the altar. And at the end of verse 5, again, we see that the aroma produced is pleasing to the Lord. Now, what's happening here in these chapters? Let's ask again. Uh, Let's ask then, what is the point of all of this? Uh, What is the purpose for all of these? Number one, God enjoys 
the free offerings of his people. Uh, there's a small word in chapters 1 to 3 that if you might miss it if you're not paying attention. It's the little word, if. Right? Have a, have a, again, uh, start with me again in chapter th- 1 uh, and skim over with me these chapters. Chapter 1, verse 3 starts with if. Chapter 1, verse 10 starts with if. One fourteen, if. Chapter 2, verse 14, if. Chapter 3, verse 1, if. Chapter 3, verse 6, if. Chapter 3, verse 12, if. Right? The word if is scattered all through these chapters to remind us that these offerings are freely given. They are not demanded by God. They are not demanded to ensure that God remains their God. God has already saved them. They are already his people. He has already chosen to dwell among them. These offerings are freely given so that God's people can come to God and say, thank you. And they are not quid pro quo. If you haven't been following the Donald Trump news, that phrase might not be familiar. But quid pro quo is this Latin phrase of, I do this for you, so you do something for me. Right? I do this offering for you, so you bless me. This is not what's going on. These offerings are given purely out of the overflowing thankfulness of the offerer to the delight and pleasure of God. Charles Spurgeon, he uh, tells a great story on this point, shares a great illustration. Uh, Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in a land. One day there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it over to the king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this. He said, my, if this is what you get for it, carrot, what if you gave the king something better? The next day, the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will therefore. I present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you. And took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot but you were giving yourself the horse. These offerings in Leviticus 1 to 3, they are like the offerings of the gardener and not the offerings of the nobleman. Point number two, these sacrifices were costly. Bulls, goats, animals from your herd, these are no small sacrifices. And they were not only, not only were they animals, but they were the best animals without blemish. They were the best of the best and so they would have fetched a high price so giving your best to God is costly and demonstrated the generosity of God's people in response to the overwhelming generosity of God to his people point number three these sacrifices were personal 
Right? You laid your hand on the animal about to die. That's a personal act. Right? It signified your personal connection with that animal. And it also signified substitution, which we'll see more in a second. Final point, these sacrifices were ordered in a very particular way. Right? Worshipping God was, to, was not done however you wanted. We don't all have different ways to worship God. We have to worship God according to his way. You need to listen to God, trust his directions, and when you followed them, he was pleased with it. So these four points, I think, reveal the main purpose of these opening offerings, to freely thank God to his delight. And I don't think it's too far from the passage to say that if you wholeheartedly wanted to show your thanks to God in these costly ways, then God's pleasure in that offering is shared with the one who gives it. But not all sacrifices are for thanksgiving, and not all sacrifices are given out of a generous heart. And so we move to chapters 4 to 7. More sacrifices are spelled out, but this time particular reasons are given for it. Now, most notably in chapter 4, the sacrifices are for unintentional sins. So have a look again at chapter 4, verse 2, and read with me. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about the things not to be done or, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt upon the people, then they are after, there to offer a sacrifice for their sins. Skip over chapter 4, verse 13. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they do one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and they realize their guilt, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a sacrifice for their sins. Chapter 4, verse 22. When a leader sins unintentionally and at the end of verse 22 realizes their guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, then he shall bring a sacrifice to the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 27, same thing with the common people. If they sin unintentionally and then they realize their guilt, then they are to bring their sacrifice. You get the same thing in chapter 5. There's a few different scenarios there in the opening of chapter 5, but again, the same themes of unintentional sin, realizing your guilt, then needing to bring a sacrifice. So you can see there's a whole lot of unintentional sins there and then realizing that sin and then offering sacrifices and as with the burnt offerings an unblemished animal is brought before God it is killed and the blood of that animal sprinkled on the altar now the key point of all these sacrifices comes at the end of chapter 4 verse 20 key point here have a look at verse chapter 4 verse 20 read with me and the priest shall make atonement for them and they shall be forgiven making atonement and receiving forgiveness is repeated throughout chapters 4 to 7. Atonement. That's a brilliant word. If you didn't know, uh, if you know how we, we live in a world where people combine words together, making new words uh, that helps us kind of connect two or more ideas together? That's actually called a portmanteau. Uh, I discovered that last night. So, you know, you have something like smog, which is a combination of smoke and fog. You've got rom-com, which is a combination of romantic and comedy. And you've got brunch, which is the best meal of the day, which is a combination of breakfast and lunch. Right? Well, the word atonement is a portmanteau as well. Right? When William Tyndale first translated the Bible into English for the first time, he made up the word atonement. 
literally he was con- trying to convey the words meaning the moment we are made at one with God at one meant atonement atonement carries the idea that the blood being spilled in these sacrifices covers the sins of the offerer the sin that threatens to divide the sinner and God is now covered the sacrifice makes atonement it is the moment that makes us at one with God. It achieves forgiveness of our sins. Now this is why blood is so important. We saw lots of blood in chapters one to three, but here again, it plays a central role. Blood needs to be spilt. You cannot, let me be really clear about this. You cannot achieve atonement and forgiveness without blood why is it so important leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 for the life of the flesh is in the blood and i have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life blood carries life ask any of the med students here any of the doctors right you can lose a finger lose an arm there are certain organs you've got to keep But if you shed enough blood, you will die. Slit the throat of an animal and drain its blood and you are taking its life away. Sin requires blood because the penalty for your sin is your life. The whole bloody mess gives us a weighty picture of our sin. Sin is no mere trifle. Sin is not just breaking rules and deserving of a slap on the wrist. We sin against God, a being of infinite purity, infinite beauty, infinite glory, infinite holiness and infinite majesty. The only just penalty for sinning against a being of infinite worth and value is, well, infinite. But because we cannot begin to pay off a debt like that, we can only give the most of what we can afford to give our very lives. Sin demands that we present ourselves before God and shed our blood. But you can see the problem with doing that. You can only do it once. So God graciously gives his people a way out. Instead of themselves, they can bring a perfect animal before God. And that animal dies in the place of the sinner. That perfect animal's blood is shed for the forgiveness of their sins. Friends, what an awesome and gracious God he is. To provide a way for his people to be forgiven. Holy and sinless in his sight. But there's something not quite right about these sacrifices, something that doesn't add up. You see, if we to read the laws flatly, with no nuance and just try to apply them honestly and strictly, we'd run into a mess of problems. The first is that the sacrifices were temporary. Each, especially the sin offerings, right? Every time you sinned, you need to bring another sacrifice. Now, given that most people lived far away from the tabernacle, can you imagine trying to keep a tally of your sins? 
right? Okay, so this week I lost it with my kids. I yelled at them in anger. Okay, that's one bull. Uh, then I had a moment of grumbling in my heart. That's a second bull. Uh, and then I had some lustful thoughts. Third bull. Uh, okay, I, you know, I got, I got really impatient with Steph. Fourth bull. Uh, by the end of the week, <laughs> you would have amassed a huge herd of bulls and goats to sacrifice. Nothing to say of next week. Which means that this system was not only incredibly costly, it's impossible to maintain at any honest level. You couldn't be honest about all of this and still afford to live. Secondly, did you notice that chapters 4 to 6 cover a lot of unintentional sins? Do you know what there is not a sacrifice for? Intentional sins. Do you want to know my biggest problem in my life? It's not my unintentional sins. If I scratch beneath the surface a bit, I'll probably realize that even my unintentional sins, there's probably some serious intentional problems behind them. Either it's my pride or my neglect or my foolishness. You know, I've, all these things underneath, these intentional sins, they've caused secondary sins. And my bet is that everyone here could probably come to the same conclusion. So I don't, need, I don't really need a sacrifice for my unintentional sins nearly as much as I need a sacrifice for my intentional sins. But where is that? Problem number three. There's a problem with the sacrifices themselves. Because when we read through these opening chapters, we must surely ask, are these sacrifices really taking away our sins? I mean, if I can vary the sacrifice depending on my budget, then surely it's not actually the animal itself forgiving me. I mean, what does it say about God's justice if two people who commit the same sin are allowed to sacrifice different things of vastly different value? So I'll give an example. Let's say Uncle Bunsheng and Auntie Yilin, right? They're wealthy and rich, filthy rich. They sin, they say some harsh things, and well, okay, they've got to bring a bull, right? But then we've got Simeon over here. He's dirt poor. He's not even a graduate, right? He's not even working. He's a student. He says the same things, but because he's unemployed, he just gets to bring a handful of flour? Surely, surely it is not the sacrifice that is forgiving the sins. So why ask for them? Problem number four. If you read through these chapters, you'll notice that the rituals don't mention our hearts very much. There are a lot of instructions for us to know and to keep, but not very much is said about the way in which we are to bring these sacrifices. Now, I studied law, and I want to say very clearly again, I didn't become a lawyer, but I know that all of us are expert lawyers when it comes to finding loopholes and exemptions in the rules. Right, my kids are already doing that. Daddy, you said no lollies for dessert, but you didn't say anything about ice cream. <laughs> right? We're just like that, but on an adult scale. We're experts at bending the rules and finding the loopholes. And so with these laws. If there's no mention of our hearts, then I think the tendency is that we might run into, we might run into is that we'll keep the letter of the law, 
but we're not going to let it impact our inner lives. We're going to present the offerings and say, well, this is what God wants, so here you go. See, what God's people need is a better sacrifice, one that can cover all of our sins, intentional or otherwise, and one that can do it for all time so that we don't need to keep bringing animals each week to sacrifice. I mean, that's the point that the writer to the Hebrews tells his readers. And he picks up on the third problem I just mentioned, that the blood of bulls and goats surely cannot forgive your sins. In fact, he says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what then? Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 26. If you got your Bibles, turn with me again to Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 26. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus listen here, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. You focus in there and at the end of verse 25, in God's divine forbearance, in his divine patience and restraint, he passed over former sins he didn't punish them he didn't forgive them just yet he passed over them see paul is telling us that the sins of the past they weren't forgiven they were passed over the punishment of those sins was being reserved for later you see the sacrifices in leviticus chapters 1 to 7 they promised atonement and forgiveness, but they didn't actually accomplish them. Instead, what you did is that you performed these sacrifices and trusted God at his word. Sometimes some people ask me, how, if we're saved through the blood of Jesus, how are saints in the Old Testament, how are Israelites in the Old Testament saved? And the answer is, by the blood of Jesus. God takes that trust that you have in his word. He passes over your sins, not punishing them then and there. And he stores up the punishment for those sins for the future. He stores them up for when his son Jesus comes. And when Jesus, on, and on Jesus, on the cross, God pours out all of his wrath and his anger that he has reserved up. Back to the writer of Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verses 11 to 14. Now flip over to your Bibles in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 to 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, 
but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus offered himself as the ultimate unblemished male sacrifice his blood is poured out and as you can see there in verse 12 his own blood is what secures eternal redemption eternal forgiveness eternal atonement what's more verse 14 jesus purifies our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living god no more going through the motions no more hypocritical religion purified consciences new hearts that are given to those who trust jesus see jesus comes to do away with the temporary jesus comes to do away with sacrifices and give a sacrifice that actually forgives jesus comes to do away with hearts that just go through the motions of dead works and he does it through his own blood being spilled Leviticus pointed God's people to how much to how they could please God and find forgiveness. God gives his people a bunch of rules and requirements for all these offerings and sacrifices and they pave the way for us here today. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the perfect sacrifice. Through Jesus we are offered eternal atonement and forgiveness. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. But it doesn't mean that we stop giving sacrifices. And thankfully, we don't have to offer any more animals up here on this table. But Paul does give us one massive challenge. If you've got your Bibles there, turn with me to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. Verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, if we trust Jesus, then we are to present our whole lives as sacrifices to God. Uh, like the sacrifices in Leviticus, our whole lives are given wholly over to God. Right? When you brought your animal before God, you didn't just slice off the ear and give it to God. You gave the whole animal. Israel worshipped God in their offerings. We worship God in the giving of our lives to live for him and not for this world. This worship looks like not looking like everyone else out there, but being transformed, turned in, uh, turning away from our worldliness, turning to Christ, uniting with him, growing in Christ-likeness. This is costly. 
giving a sacrifice to God was costly. To trust Jesus, that's going to cost our lives. Now, I want to be clear. Right? Salvation costs nothing. Right? There's no price you can pay and no works you can do to earn your forgiveness and atonement. You don't, just, you don't earn it. There's nothing you can do to deserve forgiveness and atonement. You get it. You receive it simply by trust. But in the same way that Israel worshipped God in costly ways, it costs us to worship God as well. Now, this might mean that we will need to reassess our lives and work out if we are choosing to live comfortably or are we choosing to live in a way which it costs us. You know, for Israel, it was mostly financial. But for us, choosing to follow Jesus will cost you your time, your energy, your space. You might even need to bring your personality under the lordship of Jesus and for him to use you. If I'm to follow Jesus, it will cost me in all of these areas as I live to please him. So what does that look like? I've gone long enough already, so I'm going to leave it to you. Following Jesus is costly. Have you counted the costs and are you prepared to go with it? And are you prepared to go through with it? Because friends, there is pleasure. Of, the pleasure of God waits. Let me pray. Father, in these opening chapters in this book of law, we've seen the things that you've required for offerings. We've seen you graciously give uh, sacrifices for forgiveness. We thank you that these lay the foundation for what Jesus does and all that he has done for us. So we thank you that while we, we no longer have to offer our own sacrifices, we simply trust Jesus, it will still cost us to follow him. So help us, Father, be prepared to do this. Help us, Father, to be prepared to not seek after our own pleasure in this life, but to seek your pleasure. And help us to do this till the day that we die. For your glory and our joy, we pray. Amen.